Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Wolf Gruner to the show. Wolf is Chappelle Guerin Chair in Jewish Studies and Professor of History at the University of Southern California, and he's the author of a number of important books on the Holocaust. He's also the founding director at USC of the Shoah Foundation Center for Advanced Genocide Research. And today we're going to talk about his most recent book, The Holocaust in Bohemia and Moravia, Czech Initiatives, German Policies, Jewish Responses, published by Berghahn Books. It's a thorough survey of the way anti-Semitic policies emerged and played out in the Reich's protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia from 1938 to 1945. The research is remarkably thorough. But Wolf weaves his discoveries into a broader argument about the nature of persecution and what that can tell us about the broader European patterns of the Holocaust. The German edition of the book won the Sybil Halpern Milton Memorial Book Prize from the German Studies Association in 2017, an award it richly deserved. I'm excited to have a chance to talk with Wolf about that today. So with that, thanks for joining us, Wolf, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks, Kelly, uh, Kelly for inviting me. I'm uh, thrilled to be on. So we always start by asking our guests to say a little bit about themselves, um, just to introduce themselves to the audience, and, and in particular to say a little bit about how they became interested in the um, interested in the professional study of mass violence. Yeah, so that's a long story to <laughs> to tell because uh, I have a, a very unorthodox way of pass to academia. Um, I grew up in East Germany behind the Iron Curtain. And my first life was actually, I was in my first life, I was a poet and a writer and also kind of a, in a way, political, politically distant to the regime in East Germany. So I worked in a printing office for several years and uh, only personal experiences actually led me to the path where I'm now, uh, I am now. And this has a lot to do with love because my first love was uh, half Vietnamese, half German in East Germany. And uh, so it's a very personal story. With her, I experienced almost frequently racial slurs in public. And um, I mean, I was, as you can imagine, devastated. Your first love is kind of uh, uh, harassed in this way, not just once, but uh, uh, really frequently. So I started to kind of reading about where is racism coming from? Uh, how does this evolve? What are the conditions or reasons for it? And so after a while, this is, we are talking here about the uh, end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s. It was, uh, the literature was saying more or less um, all the same. It was uh, saying you have for uh, racism to kind of um, evolve, it needs a state-sponsored ideology. 
However, this was not working in East Germany because uh, the East German propaganda was quite the opposite to this. There was It was about uh, workers of the world unite, um, everybody is equal, uh, we want a just society. So there was nothing from the state side really, really sp- uh, kind of uh, fostering uh, racism. However, on the ground, within the population, there was a lot of stereotyping, anti-Semitism, there was also some anti-Semitism, but mostly it was more kind of a xenophobic racism. So I, uh, after a while, kind of um, not satisfied by my uh, studies, I decided to study history to kind of sort this out myself. So this is actually how I came to uh, study the Holocaust, because when I then applied to study history as an undergraduate at Humboldt University in East Berlin, uh, I made a case that I want to study the Holocaust. And that's what I uh, kind of started back then and doing um, still today. So you and I chatted a little bit about this before we started. Uh, what? How was the experience of studying the Holocaust in East Germany, how was that different than it would have been in a, a Western European university? I mean, there were, first of all, I was a lonely writer because nobody really studied the Holocaust except one professor whom I studied with in East, East Berlin. Um, it was a lot kind of the uh, historical studies in East Germany would say uh, the Holocaust or the persecution of the Jews was kind of mu- more a distraction uh, of the masses by the kind of imperialist Nazi regime. So there was not much interest in it. Um, but the other much more um, kind of influential um, condition for my work was that my that I had a personal experience of uh, a dictatorship to kind of, and since I was kind of moving around in dissident circles and kind of cultural underground, so I had a lot of kind of um, personal experiences that friends were arrested, uh, people were kind of uh, excluded. And so these personal experiences to see how does a dictatorship actually work? And my main experience, which kind of I applied to my studies to the Holocaust, is uh, there is not a top-down dictatorship possible. It's always kind of uh, depending on the cooperation of a large part of the population. So that's not a kind of a small a party and a terrorist or kind of a terror organization like for the Holocaust, the Gestapo or the SS, that's not working. You can't just rule with terror. That's not possible. And so there are a lot of other incentives which kind of make people uh, uh, either comply or uh, or more so uh, being initiative within a dictatorship. So I think this kind of really shaped my approach and my view on how persecution evolves in a society, how a group is singled out, how uh, the the group is persecuted, who is participating in this and why. So there are a lot of kind of ideas I got from my personal experience. So you're now at University of Southern California. And, and as I said, the founding director of the Center for Advanced Genocide Research Associated with the Shoah Foundation. Could, could you just briefly describe that program and what you hope to do or why you why you decided that this was important? So, as I said, I had an unorthodox past, so coming to uh, USC in 2008 was my first, actually, teaching job. So I got 
practically I uh, started from zero to 100. I was never assistant professor because back in Germany, after my PhD, I decided I wanted to dedicate my full time to research and writing. So, so I lived on unemployment benefits and some grants too. And that's <laughs> some people wonder why I writ, have written so many, many books. That's why, because I had the time. I didn't need to teach. I was privileged in this regard. Um, but what I developed over time was that after my fourth or fifth book, I always uh, I saw that I'm already starting to repeat myself as a young scholar uh, in my arguments or my my views, and so I decided to kind of uh, compare and branch out and look at other instances of mass violence. So I developed a deep interest in comparison, the comparative history of mass violence, and um, I did as. A kind of a second PhD, what the Germans uh, ask for, it's called rehabilitation. I did a study on the discrimination against indigenous, indigenous, indigenous uh, population in Bolivia in the 19th century, where where you have all the ingredients for a kind of a mass murder. You have the fierce racism, uh, segregation policies, forced labor. So a lot of compar- uh, 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 comparable elements uh, even eliminationist fantasies at the end of the 19th century. Uh, however, there was no mass murder at the end. And I picked this topic exactly for the reason to make a better analysis or kind of to uh, to have the possibility for more uh, a clearer analysis because we are often misled when we look back from the end, the mass murder like Auschwitz, then we are kind of often misled uh, to overlook alternatives in history. And with my topic with of Bolivia, where there was no mass murder, I could see all these different conditions and elements of persecution there. And then I had to revise the question, is it really just kind of ideology, which kind of leads to uh, murder? Uh, or are there, is there more? Are there different conditions or more conditions to it? So this kind of laid the foundation for my comparative uh, interest. And when I came to USC, uh, uh, I think one of the arguments for hiring me was actually that I had not just worked on the Holocaust, but also had this comparative side. And it was, USC was very supportive. I created a research cluster where I focused on uh, uh, the resistance to genocide, because that's an also very overlooked uh, uh, aspect of mass violence that we always focus on the perpetrators, but don't really look at what people actually do against it. Um, And this was an interdisciplinary workshop and kind of built the foundation for then uh, the center I founded uh, together with the Shoah Foundation, the Center for Advanced uh, Genocide Research. Uh, So the center is a very interdisciplinary entity. It's the academic branch of the uh, Shoah Foundation. We have a, a program which consists of uh, speaker series, uh, annual conferences. So we had conferences on uh, the uh, genocide in Guatemala, music as a resistance uh, to mass violence, we uh, digital uh, genocide studies. I think we did the first uh, conference there. Uh, last uh, in 2018, we had the um, uh, only international conference on the uh, Kristallnacht on the November prom, which I never expected. <laughs> um, so, and this year we will have a, a conference, which I'm also very proud of. It's uh, on mass violence and its lasting impact on indigenous communities, where I want to compare North America 
South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific. So this is kind of an interdisciplinary center. We have also fellowship programs where we, uh, in, uh, on a competitive basis, we offer fellowships to a PhD candidates. These are short-term for a month. And our own kind of uh, request is that they have innovative approaches to work with um, survivor interviews from the Shaw Foundation for their research. Well, it sounds like a great program, uh, and you've clearly continued your interest in comparative history, and, and it's brought you to this book, The Holocaust in Bohemia and Moravia. So, so why this book? Why did you decide to write this book at this time? <laughs> so first of all, we have to say what means at this time, because although it is published in 2016, I actually started to, to, uh, to develop the idea for this book in 2002. You've just That's terrified every graduate student who's listening <laughs> to us. No, maybe the other way around. Actually, what it, what I did or what, what happened was I was at this time a postdoc at the Holocaust Museum. Uh-huh. I went there with a project um, which um, prose- proposed to investigate uh, on a microhistorical uh, with a microhistorical approach um, different city governments and their uh, involvement and initiatives regarding anti-Jewish persecution in Germany. So this was a comparative microhistorical project. Um, I got this postdoc. I went there. It was one of the best experiences uh, I ever had. And some of my fellowship, my fellowship program is a little bit modeled after the Holocaust uh, Museums program and my own experience there, which was so beneficial because I met other uh, people from other disciplines and so on. But what I did there was, it's probably most fellows do, you don't only do what you are supposed to do. So <laughs> I, I actually, I'm a big archival, how can I say it, uh, maniac maybe. Uh-huh. So I can't leave an archive uh, without touching it. And so when I was there, I was deeply immersed in archival research. And one day I came across um the, uh, holding a collection which the Holocaust Museum had as a copy from uh, Prague's uh, ministries, from the protectorate. And in this moment, when I saw this, I said, hmm, it's actually interesting. I found all these differences between the German city governments. And as uh, uh, I, since I have worked on Austria, where I knew that Vienna was also even more different than the, uh, what happened there to German cities, I thought, I wonder what happened actually in Prague. Was there really a German dominance? Because this was the first kind of not real annexation with Germans, but it was a kind of a territory with a majority of non-Germans. So was this just kind of simple German occupation and they uh, kind of um, just uh, established a policy which was already kind of uh, uh, approved of in Berlin, uh, as you can read in most literature. Uh, so I did some studies and then I realized, hold on. I mean, even before I went to the city government of Prague, I saw that the ministries, the Czech ministries, developed their own anti-Jewish measures. And I said, that's interesting. And uh, mm. that there was a Czech kind of, um, kind of, uh, uh, how can I say this, that they were ahead of German policies there in huh. some regards. 
And so that's when I thought, hmm, I should actually look deeper into this. So I, I uh, actually used part of my time at the Holocaust Museum. I hope they, uh, they understand this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, to actually dig deep in this, to, into this collection and realize that this is, nobody had really uh, uh, investigated this. Uh, the Germans thought the Germans did everything. The Czechs uh, said the Germans did everything. So there was kind of an understanding that there was not a big role of the Czech uh, and also not an independent role of the, uh, the Czech institutions. And this looked very different than the, in these files. And so I said, I will write a small book which kind of analyzes the uh, kind of very uh, complex situation between uh, orders from Berlin uh, German kind of measures from pra in Prague from the Reich Protector and German institutions, uh, which are newly established there. Then, the, what did the Czech government do? What uh, is what about local policies of Czech, mun Czech municipalities? Um, and then, kind of mixed things where the German established kind of German mayors in Czech towns and so on. So. I thought this is just a policy analysis. And uh, I started to write. I had one third of the book written in, I think it was in 2010, um, because other projects came in between. And uh, I was at a conference in Jerusalem. And uh, as I said, I can't leave an archive untouched. So I was in the archive in Yad Vashem in my free time uh, from the conference. Uh, and I made a big mistake because I asked the archivist, um, do you have by any chance the weekly reports from the Prague Jewish community to Adolf Eichmann? I knew they existed because I had worked with similar uh, weekly reports in Germany, in Berlin, but also in Vienna uh, for my research on Vienna. And I knew these are kind of incredible sources. Uh, you have to read them carefully, but they have a lot of the social reality uh, in them uh, of the persecution. So I was keen to see some of them at least. Um, and then they came back and said to me, oh, yes, we have one quarter of weekly reports. And then I made the second mistake. And I said, do we have by any chance more of those? And then they said, uh, let's find out. In the end, after two days, they came back to me. I uh, had to extend my stay for, I think, 10 days. And then I was uh, standing there taking pictures of 8,000 or 10,000 pages of weekly weekly reports. Uh, they had all the weekly reports from summer 1939 till summer 1942. So the entire time, except one quarter, plus they had... Um, communication between the Gestapo and smaller uh, um, Jewish communities in, uh, uh, all across uh, Bohemia and Moravia. So suddenly I had a source base which I never expected, which totally game, uh, changed my game because uh, from a regular kind of policy analysis and showing these multiple sides, suddenly I could actually sh show how did this impact the Jewish population which I never could done before in this regard. And uh, so I thought, I, knowing that this exists and that I have access to it, I can't just leave it. So I thought one year about how can I remedy this kind of um, situation. Uh, so I actually, in the end, I decided I can't write this book as it was envisioned. I have to reconceptualize it. And that's what I did. 
And then it took another five years to write it. And uh, in the end, it uh, kind of was published in German first in uh, 2016. And now it's kind of, this is, we, we are talking about the English translation, but it's also translated into Czech and into Hebrew now. So I'm listening to the, the specific word choices you're making, but I'm hearing the excitement in your voice. And I'm, I'm thinking when you saw all that material, you didn't actually say, I have to stay another 10 days. You said something like, oh, yay, I get to stay another 10 days at the archives. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, this was one of the things uh, everyone, uh, everybody kind of as a researcher awaits, awaits for. And uh as I said, I have a deep uh, a kind of uh, um, uh, appreciation for archives from my early time on with my senior thesis. And uh, I had made a lot of kind of discoveries over the years in archives, which often comes from very systematic work. And But this time it was really an unexpected uh, discovery. And Moreover, nobody really had worked with this, with those. So nobody really know, knew that these exist. So uh, to uncover them for the first time and then to be able to kind of enrich my research and uh, my study with uh, with all these details, many of the things we had no clue uh, of. And so I think the book is new in various different layers. Well, does it need, well let, let's tur turn to the book now. And, and some of the listeners may be familiar with this, but others may not. So, so maybe we should start with a simple question or, or at least – a plain question. Um, what was the uh, protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia? So, the um, Nazi Germany, uh, Germany uh, had kind of the vision to unite all ethnic Germans uh, in a way. This led to the first to the annexation of Austria, then to the Munich uh, Agreement, where they uh, extended uh, into the Sudetenland. But this Munich Agreement kind of partly destroyed the Czech, uh, Czechoslovak Republic, which um, uh, gave up a chunk of very important uh, territory with industries, resources, borderlands. Um, and the Germans had already developed uh, interest in further down to um, occupy Czechoslovakia and also Poland. So in March 1939, um, the Germans kind of put a lot of political pressure on the um, Czech government. Uh, they gave in, as did the Austrians before, and uh, the Germany occupied without bloodshed um, the Bohemia Moravia part of the former Czechoslovak Republic because um, the Slovak part. Uh, had uh, split up and, and uh, got independence a little bit uh, the day before. So now there was this big part with a lot of industries, a lot of resources uh, resources and population, uh, which then was turned into a very interesting um, semi-autonomous entity. So it was not like Austria. It was just pure annexed and integrated into the German Reich. This got a kind of a specific status, and this has to do what I already mentioned, that the majority was non-German. This was the first territory. Uh, so they could not uh, expect that everybody would be happy to be part of the German Reich. So they created this um, semi-autonomous 
Protectorate of Bohemia Moravia. They granted kind of semi-autonomous status to the Czech government. Um, there were a few fields where the Germans wanted to uh, dictate uh, the policy. This was uh, foreign policy, economy, and uh, the military. But every other kind of task of a government was left to the um, to the Czechs, including uh, the formulation of anti-Jewish policies. And this was interesting since we always think about like uh, Hitler and uh, the fanatic Nazi party, they already kind of um, developed this uh, comprehensive anti-Jewish persecution over time, which, if you look closer, is not so comprehensive and there's, it's not well-planned. It's very chaotic, but it culminated in the end in the, Nuremberg, uh, in, the, uh, in the Nuremberg racial laws and then in the November program. Uh, so there is this German policy, but they don't apply this here. They leave this more or less to the Czech government. And this creates a very different perspective uh, from where you start out analyzing what actually happened on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's useful to take a step back here then, given given what you've just said. Uh, Long ago, I started life out as a Habsburg historian, and and at least at that point, historians often depicted interwar Czechoslovakia as it's kind of an island of tolerance in a Central or East European ocean of illiberalism and anti-Semitism. Is, is that assumption true? Yeah, so this is how I also started to approach this. So I thought, uh, I know that this was the least anti-Semitic country in Europe at the time. That's what everybody uh, uh, kind of who uh, knew this history uh, would say. But then again, on the ground, everything is much more complicated. So there were anti-Semitic instances too. There was, um, let's say, from the Shaw Foundation testimonies, the interviews of survivors, you learn that in certain uh, cities, in certain localities, um, Jewish pupils experienced anti-Semitism or Jewish families. But it was much more, was very complex. So some experienced never anything or don't remember it. Uh, Others say, yes, it's very clear. So there was probably more anti-Semitism than we usually would um, assume, but it was also very depending on the time because uh, the, as a democratic society, um, the Czech government was battling kind of racism and anti-Semitism. However, in the 1930s, with the um, upswing of the Nazi uh, kind of uh, Nazi German policies, plus its influence in the uh, region where the ethnic Germans lived in the Czechoslovak Republic, the Sudeten, where they created kind of a large following for Hitler. This impacted also kind of the development of or the increase of anti-Semitism in the rest of Bohemia Moravia, mainly driven by Czech fascists, also as other ethnic Germans in these other areas. And then uh, in the end, uh, with the uh, after the Munich Agreement, the second, so-called second uh, um, Czechoslovak Republic, uh, this they already started with their own anti-Jewish measures. One of the points you make in the book is that the number of Germans who are on the ground or routinely working in and on uh, issues in the protectorate is really pretty small. So where do those people come from and 
And what, where are they drawing their lessons from about how to treat this or how to uh, uh, deal with the people in this new territory? Yeah, let me take also a step back. I think that's kind of a really uh, misunderstanding what most people have about how kind of persecution evolves. So often we think about Nazi Germany as you have these kind of um, violent organizations like the Gestapo SS and the Nazi Party, and then the rest of the population is more or less indifferent. The problem is the Gestapo was a very small um, uh, uh, institution. They had not, uh, if you count all German um, cities, 60,000, the Gestapo had only 20,000 men. So you see, they were depending on a lot of other kind of um, people denouncing like denunciations from the population, uh, cooperation from other institutions. And very similar, you see also the... Um, uh, the uh, circumstances then in the annexed or occupied territories, including Poland uh, later on. So here in um, in the protectorate, you have kind of two groups of Germans, the ones who are already there, the ethnic Germans, or who come from the former Sudeten uh, part of um, the Czechoslovak Republic. And then you have the Germans who come, who are practically moved from the Reich into uh, the new uh, kind of newly uh, annexed territory. So um, some of the ethnic Germans who are already there um, are kind of socialized with uh, Nazi propaganda. They are kind of attracted to the success of the Nazi regime. So there is a lot kind of uh, uh, favor from there, from their side. Uh, and then you have the Reich German who are kind of... Um, mandated to go uh, or they kind of also look for success to go in these regions because they have more possibilities, more career chances and so on. And so the flip side of that, and, and you partially answered this already, but the the officials, the, the Czech officials, the people running both the, I guess, the state level government in Bohemia, in, in the protectorate, but also people who are on the on the ground in towns and villages and um, local areas. Is there continuity in those officials between the pre-occupation period or the pre-protectorate period and, and, and the protectorate? Are these the same people or, or are they different? Yes. Yeah, so um, the Czech government of the protectorate was uh, kind of um, consisting of several ministers who were already uh, ministers uh, in the kind of pre-occupation phase. That means in the second um, uh, Czechoslovak Republic. So there is a continuity there. Um, the difference is that now, since the Germans are in this territory with military, there's a certain power also exercised, and the Germans demand consultations. Uh, even when they grant certain autonomy there. So you have, on the one hand, a continuity also going down to municipalities, for example, but you have then also German influence, which is uh, on the one hand that they establish their own institutions like the Office of the Rice Protector, they establish uh, Gestapo offices, they establish um, labor offices later on, but they also resort to the Czech uh, expertise and institutions like um, 
forced labor, for example, is introduced by the Czech Ministry of uh, Social Health. And so, so there you have practically these two sides. And the Germans sometimes also, to exert more influence, try to plant their own people into existing Czech institutions. That means, for example, in the municipality of Prague, the city government, um, they planted uh, the deputy mayor was um, uh, uh, there was a German appointed to this, um, who was an historian, by the way, uh, from the Sudeten uh, led, and uh, he was very instrumental in trying to push also anti-Jewish agendas in uh, the in the city of Prague, in the capital of the former Czechoslovak Republic. How quickly did life change for the Jews after the establishment of the Protectorate? Uh, pretty quick, because um, uh, interestingly, and here's the continuity, the first anti-Jewish measures uh, were already uh, enacted before the Germans even set a foot into the territory. That means it starts the kind of this so-called second Czechoslovak Republic starts in the fall of 1938. Uh, and this is when the first discussion uh, evolved uh, within the government about uh, in- establishing anti-Jewish measures. So there is there are restrictions in the public service. Um, and this has immediate effect that also private organizations follow suit very similar to Germany in the 1930s. So you have the association of lawyers who suddenly don't want to uh, have more uh, Jewish members and so on. And then when the Germans are in, the first measure, as far as I know, was actually a measure of the uh, Czech government, uh, which uh, targeted uh, then mostly in the months after the um, Germans came, uh, the segregation of the Jews in, uh, in public and the exclusion of the Jews from public service uh, and public offices. While the Germans, they're much more interested in property and uh, the alienization of Jewish property. I'm struck by, uh, in your narrative, the the relationship between the question of emigration and deportation. So so could you say something about how those two intentions or, or imagined futures interacted in 1939 and 19, uh, well, 38, 39 and early 40? Yeah, so, when, I mean, immigration affected uh, or the status of immigration, the success of immigration or the non-success of immigration affected deeply kind of the policies around uh, the Jewish population, even before the Jews, uh, the, the Germans came, and then especially after uh, they arrived. So for, before they came, when uh, the Germans uh, annexed the Sudetenland, they, a lot of Jews were expelled from their homes. They fled uh, into the Czech part, um, in the remaining Czech uh, parts of the territory. So there was suddenly what we today call very similar to the to then a refugee crisis, and as re, uh, as uh, we also know today, these cr- so-called crises are partly manufactured and then instrumentalized for political uh, political purposes, and that's exactly what happened in 1938 and 1939 from the Czech side. That uh, this was used to kind of uh, establish anti-Jewish measures before the Germans even came, because there was this influx of uh, um, Jewish refugees. And uh, then when the Germans are there, uh, interestingly, you would assume at the point in time, everything was um, kind of 
used or every method was used or established by the German or implemented to expel the Jews out of the German territory. However, what they did when they arrived in, uh, in Prague is, although they shut down first all the Jewish institutions, and then as it would happen, uh, as it had, had happened in Vienna, it was not that they pushed out the Jews as fast as possible. They actually forbade the immigration of Jews from Prague or from the Czech territories. That means, therefore, a lot of Jews try to kind of uh, go uh, over the green border, so to speak, legally, because officially they could not immigrate. And that's very kind of a very particular situation because why would they forbid? But there's a very simple reasons. These uh, refugees would have kind of, um, how can I say this, um, would it made it harder for German Jews to uh, kind of flee the country or emigrate because they would compete uh, over resources, transit visa, uh, train tickets with the German Jews. And the Gestapo and the security service of the AS, uh, SS, they wanted to have the German Jews out first. So that's why they first, for the first months, uh, there was a prohibition of immigration. But then when uh, the, the war loomed uh, with Poland, the, uh, the Germans kind of got into detailed preparation for the invasion. The Gestapo kind of changed their approach and uh, said, for us, it's important as many Jew to get as many Jews out as possible uh, before a war starts. And so they changed their policy. So you see, this is very much connected. And uh, the, the outcome was not only to now suddenly allow immigration from um, the um, from Bohemia and Moravia, but also um, Prague and uh, Vernon, they were both cities which were included in the first deportation program which was ever established uh, in German, Nazi Germany, which was way earlier than most people assume, which uh, practically happened in October 1939. This means only a few weeks after the invasion of Poland. And several thousand uh, Czech Jews were among the 5,000 Jews who were deported from Vienna, uh, from Upper Silesia, and Bohemia Moravia to the east of the newly conquered Polish territories. And was the intent to continue, or, or how, how did that end? How did that initial deportation end up being stopped? Yeah. So the literature usually uh, uh, assessed this in a way and saying um, this was driven by Eichmann. They understood Eichmann is uh, the kind of the Austrian guy who ran the central office for Jewish immigration in Vienna. And uh, widely, uh, historians agreed that this was a kind of an individual, independent maneuver of Eichmann. My sources actually uh, tell a very different story. Uh, I found sources where they, the plan was more, more uh, kind of initial a pilot so to speak, or the beginning of a large-scale deportation. So, for example, one document talks about the deportation of 300,000 uh, Jews from Greater Germany, which includes German, Austrian, and Czech Jews. Another document uh, says the deportation of the German Jews will start in November. However, this uh, first deportation um, 
uh, wave was stopped by the head uh, of the SS, by Himmler, uh, in the beginning of November. So just the moment when they, the Germans should enter the scheme, because the, uh, there were technological problems, uh, problems. Uh, they had uh, infrastructure uh, structure problems to get the people to the east. Uh, and so they stopped this and postponed this for several months to the next spring. And often we see history from the end. So for us, this was kind of not the beginning of the big deportation because the big deportation started two years later for us because we see the actual result. But you have to think about these alternatives. And if you look at it, the actual plan to deport most of the German Jews, including the Austrians and Czechs, was set already um, in uh, September, October 1939, a few weeks after the invasion of Poland. So then you have this period that lasts, oh, a couple years, give or take, um, where deportation may be an idea, but is not a reality. Um, and so how, how does the dynamic of policymaking toward Jews and the protectorate um, how does that work in that those two years? Is it uh, um, is is it possible to say that local autonomous efforts were more significant than centralized efforts, or vice versa? How how would you assess that, and and what happens? Yeah, so kind of as a result of all of my studies combined, uh, I can say that. Uh, one has to look at the persecution of the Jews as a kind of a multi-institutional effort. So a lot of agencies and institutions were involved. It was never just kind of Hitler. It was never just the SS. Uh, it was a huge variety of different um, administrations and institutions, which often worked in a kind of a um, division of task uh, area uh, where every institution kind of looked at one field. Uh, this um, also there's are differences between kind of central policies and local policies, um, and I think this shows a little bit. But also what happened then in Prague, the only central area we are talking about, which was always managed uh, from Berlin, was deportations. Uh, and since the deportations were stopped in the fall of 1939, suddenly there was this. Yeah, kind of not, I would not say vacuum is too strong a word, but there was this gap or this kind of lack of developed plans what now to do because the expectations were first they would be deported, so we don't need to do anything. Then they postponed the deportations. That means in a few months they will be deported. So we don't need to really establish things. So for um, one measurement for this is that um, in Bohemia Moravia, there is not an immediate establishment of forced labor, which is kind of counterintuitive because forced labor was introduced against German Jews as a uh, measure to remedy the problem of unemployment on the one hand, and on the other hand of uh, um, decreasing income for Jewish families. and at the third moment, to extract as much kind of economic resource from the uh, remaining Jews as possible. So you would assume the same would apply for, would have been applied by the Germans in, um, in the protectorate. 
But no, they expected they would be deported. So it didn't really make sense to establish a big forced labor program. Uh, so this kind, kind of a direct uh, um, uh, impact on how the anti-Jewish policy developed differently than in other regions. And uh, that's what I think, uh, why it is so important. What I try in the book is always to compare these developments uh, in different areas between what happened in Germany at the same time, in the same area, what happened in Austria, and what happened also in parts of Poland, of occupied Poland. And here you see that uh, we have to kind of think about much more complex developments, which really uh, kind of just, how can I say this, diminish the role of this ideological fanatism and uh, bring in much more to the forefront economic um, uh, considerations, social issues, um, differences between institutions, uh, local initiatives. And so it makes, makes the whole story so much more complicated. Uh, but what it also does is doesn't kind of uh, uh, let people off the hook because you see then when you look at all these different institutions, how many more people were involved in the persecution of the Jews than we've previously assumed. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, so maybe the way to phrase this is to say, how, how, how did ordinary Czechs respond um, respond to these anti-Semitic policies and practices? Uh, I would say also very in a very different way. So you find, uh, for example, um, Czechs in Prague who write uh, letters uh, to the city government or to the uh, Nazi party branch because they are interested in uh, Jewish apartments. But you have also Czechs who kind of uh, support Jewish families when they want to flee across the border or with other means. So as in every society, you have a very also complex variety of uh, attitudes but also i have to say i think i want to make a point that this attitudes change and they depend on situations so uh, what we learn from perpetrator studies um during the last 20 years it is not that people act always the different the same way you can we have now uh, uh, research results which point to that perpetrators uh, acted also as rescuers because they are in this different situation, they are approached. So it's less about the character; it's much more about the the overall conditions, the situation, the relationships between people, which determine what people do in what kind of uh, part of the timeline, so to speak. If non-specialists know anything about the protector, it is probably Reinhard Heydrich. So, so why is Heydrich brought in and? And how does his presence change policy? Yeah, so Reinhard Heydrich, uh, as the head of the uh, German police and the security service of the SS, he is in, uh, it's interesting. I mean, he is a household name for Nazi crimes. And I think maybe we should also say, you just mentioned people don't know so much about the protectorate. The only thing what people know is the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. Right, uh, and then probably also Ghetto Theresienstadt, and this is interesting. There is a, I think, it's motivated by 
uh, that there is not much interest in Czech affairs in general. So that's much more the attention to the German part, because Heidrich what was brought in from Germany to kind of uh, really uh, uh, sort things out uh, in the protectorate. And the Theresienstadt uh, as a ghetto was only interesting because a lot of German Jews ended up being there. So there is also kind of, I would say, German centrism in research, uh, which kind of played out. Uh, and that's also what I wanted to change with my book. That's why my book doesn't talk much about the Dresdenstadt uh, ghetto, because I wanted to really uh, investigate what actually happened to the Jewish population before they were deported. And Reinhard Heydrich, uh, in a way, is brought in because uh, the Czech uh, population to a large degree was not friendly as the Austrians were to the Germans. They felt occupied. There was resistance. Um, there was uh, sabotage. There were uh, underground groups. Um, so, uh, and then at a certain point, there were uh, big demonstrations against the Germans. So he is brought in to kind of really rule with a much more draconian manner uh, to quell any kind of potential mass-scale uh, resistance. And uh, part of what he does is also to uh, to do, to centralize, uh, or he tries to centralize anti-Jewish measures, which speaks to uh, the fact that before he comes, a lot of the anti-Jewish measures were, uh, this is what I show in the book, were initiated um implemented and executed by kind of Czech uh, administrations and Czech people uh, in certain areas sometimes where kind of um, measure or uh, kind of uh, existing policies are adopted, but not always. They, be, they are also kind of adopted in a way that uh, they apply to the special circumstances uh, in Bohemia Moravia. So this tells us also that uh, when you look at Europe as a whole uh, and the persecution of the Jews, um, that we have to look at all of these different countries and territories in a more um, microscopic way to understand why certain persecution measures were introduced uh, at certain points, but not always at the same point in time uh, or not always at the same kind of a part of the persecution timeline, if you want to call it this. So there are different trajectories which are very much influenced by local conditions, local cooperation, uh, local interests, uh, and also uh, by the development of the war in general. So there are a diff very complex interplay of different conditions which influence the persecution on the ground. And so can you say the same about the Jewish response to persecution. Yeah, that's actually the interesting part. So first, most historians had a kind of a, uh, understanding that uh, Jewish resistance is more or less uh, kind of defined by organized um, uh, group settings. And uh, people think about resistance often in a way that this needs to be armed. So when we talk about the Holocaust, the only thing what comes to mind for people as resistance uh, in general is uh, the Warsaw up uh, ghetto uprising and the partisans, uh, the partisans in Eastern Poland and the uh, occupied Soviet Union. Uh, this was 
up for debate since this, the Second World War uh, kind of ended because, I mean, um, survivors, but also Israeli historians point to the fact that there was much, so much more, but uh, needs to be perceived as resistance, like spiritual resistance, the uh, conversation of religion, of Jewish culture, uh, education. And uh, extending these ideas, I kind of developed a much broader approach to resistance, looking at uh, what the individual actually could do and did uh, against the um, uh, implementation and advancement of these uh, the anti-Jewish persecution. And this is uh, coming back to the beginning of our of our conversation, uh, was very much influenced by my own personal experience in East Germany. Since I was part of the underground, I know uh, that the regime is looking at outsiders or people who are opposing the regime um, in general in a way that anything what you say, anything what you do can be judged as uh, hostile to the regime. So it's not that you need to take up arms to be identified as kind of an opponent. It starts so much more earlier. So that's why people in dictatorships, it's uh, it's a problem. Can you talk to everybody when you are saying this? How is this recognized? Will people denunciate you? Um, are there informants? So every practically everything what you do and what you s- say needs to be uh, um, evaluated by yourself. Uh, what are the repercussions? What are the risks? Um, uh, not just for yourself, but also for your family, your friends. So, in this way, applying this personal experience, I define uh, Jewish resistance extremely broad because any kind of um, circumventing, ignoring Jewish measures is a way is practically uh, resistance. Since the Germans, the Nazis, they punish Jews for exactly doing this, like ignoring uh, laws, not wearing the star, not applying for the forced middle name. These were perceived as resistance act, acts and they were punished. So my understanding is so much broader and uh, it, and I only I think I, I'm able to show this because uh, when we know the diversity of anti-Jewish measures, we can understand how the Jews actually also uh, reacted in a very uh, diverse manner because the circumstances and the kind of the things they have to respond to are so different. So, as you said in your conclusion, out of the approximately 118,000 Jews um, who lived in Bohemian Moravia in 1938, only about 14,000 were left um, to see the end of the war. Uh, And I know this is a broad general question, but I'll I'll phrase it and you can summarize as you wish. What happens to those 14,000? So, yeah, so I didn't do so much, so many kind of intensive studies on the post-war period. But uh, interestingly, Czech Jews, uh, some of them were actually persecuted as being Germans after the war, which is extremely ironic and macabre in a way. Um, so, because they spoke German, uh, uh, and that's where they kind of have to suddenly wear armbands like the Germans. Um, and others kind of went back to their homes, but 
their homes were either destroyed or they were occupied by Czechs. Um, so they couldn't go back. And then uh, many, in a way, kind of leave um, the uh, the Bohemia Moravia and go either to Palestine or to the United States or other territories where they still have family. And some state. So we're about out of time for this discussion. Um, are there what what lessons? And you've already named several, uh, but are there other lessons you want to highlight that that you've drawn from this study that we should think about in thinking about the Holocaust or other genocides? Yeah, just maybe to repeat, I think what this study shows is that uh, persecution of a group, if you want to generalize it, is uh, only partly motivated. Uh, and explainable by the existence of a kind of a racist ideology. There are so many other factors which influence the cause of the persecution, the, the implementing of anti-Jewish measures that we have to talk about. Uh, for example, um, that over the course of persecution, opportunities are open for people to participate. So when Jews lose their jobs or their shops, other people can benefit. When um, when you work in the city government and uh, you are not even kind of a fanatic anti-Semite, um, but the setting is like this, you are tend to um, kind of exclude Jews as the weakest element, so to speak, when you have to distribute resources. So there are things we have which we have to incorporate in our analysis economic factors, social factors, uh, political factors, which really kind of shape how persecution starts, develops, and in the end plays out uh, against the Jewish population. Well, at this point, normally in the interview, I would um, be getting ready to say goodbye. To use a sports metaphor, that's not really appropriate now. It's more like halftime since Wolf will be joining me again along with a co-editor for discussion of a, another book here in the next few weeks. Uh, but maybe we'll just end this interview by asking you to say um, – to suggest to the audience a book or two or a movie or something that was meaningful to, to you that, that you would recommend to the audience. Yeah, so I mean one book which helped me uh, – over the course of the uh, of writing the book, was actually um, the diary of a young boy in Prague, uh, which I cite in the book several times. It's called uh, uh, Peter Gint's uh, the Prague Diary, and it's published in different languages. Uh, the English translation is not as good as the German one, but uh, it just shows really how a young a teenager experience um, who is a good observer experience practically the changes you were asking about. Uh, and in his own family, with his parents, with his neighbors, with the friends of the family, with the Jewish community. So there's a lot of detail in this diary, which you normally don't get, even in diaries from other teenagers, which we know because they talk just about their family. But I think it's very special here that there is this um, kind of, he describes a lot of the developments with a lot of insights to the Jewish community. So you see not just individual reactions, but also collective reactions of the uh, Jewish community. 
Yeah, I saw and that in your um, in your notes. I just, and can yeah. I just uh, kind of say it? Please. And I'm I'm so interested in this because what uh, I think you asked me what I would add about what is special about the book in my view. So, so Friedlander was asking for 20 years to that we uh, historians should write uh, integrated um, histories. That means not just looking at the analysis of the perpetrators, but really also include the voices of the, the, the victims. And uh, a lot of historians kind of uh, hit to the call. I think what I do in the book uh, is actually going one step beyond this call. And I call this integrative history. What I try to do is here to combine not just to not just to include the voices of the victims, but really to show them as historical agents, as active people who who react to the persecution, sometimes even uh, uh, try to prevent it or to resist it. And I think that's what I'm most proud of in this book, to bring these two in a very active way together, not just as an illustration of voices. And that is both the reason why the book is so good and a reason why it's perhaps so hard to isolate in a series of questions in an interview. So I would encourage everybody listening to go read it. It's a wonderful book. And Wolf, I'll press pause for the moment. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to having you back in a few weeks to talk about another book. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much.